Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me. It's one of the Independent's top 10 women's memoirs. It's a tender and irreverent celebration of the connections we forge with women, viewed through the lens of my own relationship with my five adorable and infuriating little sisters. It's been described as a Nancy Mitford novel meets Fleabag, If that appeals, I think you'll like it. The Sisterhood is available from bookshops nationwide. If you'd like to support the podcast, buying the book is the best way for you to do that. Our guest this week is the author, activist and acclaimed speaker, Alif Shafak. We're celebrating the publication of her 17th book, 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in This Strange World, the extraordinary story of Layla and the sense memories she briefly experiences in her posthumous life and how they connect her friends together. As her millions of fans know, her writing is piercingly vivid, perspicacious, shocking and funny. She's a writer who is working to change the world and make it better for women and for anyone who feels vulnerable and displaced. We spent some time in her beautiful London office library. Over Turkish tea, we talked about the tyranny of the TBR pile being bullied over Cervantes and death metal. Um, so we're in London in Alif's... Is this your, your study? A reading room? or what, what, How would you describe this room? I am utterly... I think this is the first... Your book house we've ever been to where someone has a proper Belle, Beauty and the Beast ladder. These bookshelves must be three, four metres high. I can't count, but there's a proper... Do you use it? Do you slide up and down? All the time, all the time. And I love as well, I really love that it comes with a, um, a seat so you can sit and curl up. Um, when do you read? Do you have a, a time of day or a, a point where, or just whenever you have a chance? Whenever I have a chance, I honestly think writers need to be readers primarily and they need to remain like that all their lives. So to me, it's very important whether I'm on the tube, at home. Um, and, and I like to read both fiction and non-fiction, both from the East and the West. So I don't necessarily only read fiction. I love reading about history, philosophy, you know, political science. I enjoy 
all of that, in addition to poetry, novels, mysticism, everything's connected. I wanted to ask you, because I know that you're a multilinguist, and I know you write in English and in Turkish, is there a language that you like reading in other than English and Turkish? I do read a little bit in Spanish as well. Uh, actually, I, I did not grow up bilingual. I'm sure you can hear my mispronunciation and everything. I, <laughs> no, not at all. The reason I'm mentioning this is because I'm a latecomer in this language. And I think like many, many latecomers, I do feel this gap between the mind and the tongue. I think the mind always w runs faster and the tongue is trying to catch up when you try to express yourself in another language. And that gap can be a little bit frustrating sometimes, but it can also be quite inspiring. I started learning English at the age of 10 and I was in Madrid at, at the time. So I went to an international school in Madrid and Spanish was my second language after Turkish. And then it was English, but English never abandoned me and I love this language, it's vocabulary, thinking in this language, expressing myself in this language. Also, when I write, um, when I used to write primarily in Turkish, I was constantly trying to expand the daily life Turkish. Um, in Turkey, we have Turkified our language, which means our vocabulary has shrunk to a, to, to a large degree. Um, and words that used to come from Arabic, Persian, Armenian, Ladino, they've been taken out of the language. So in Turkish, I can say red and I can say yellow, but the shades in between, I cannot express because I don't have words for them. I didn't know that. That's really yeah. interesting. Is that because lots of new words are sort of slightly anglicised? I love the joke in Daughters of Eve about the Starbucks. And I don't know how you say Starbucks or the, kind of the way that things are kind of twisted and recognisable. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite interested in words that, of course, cannot be easily carried from one language to the next. You know, I, And I think those gaps between languages, maybe they inspire us to think more carefully. What are the words that have no equivalent in, in another language? And why is it like that? It's not only a linguistic difference, mm. there's a cultural difference yes. there. So I love thinking about these well, things and maybe commuting between languages. Maybe over the years I realized if I'm, if there's sorrow in my writing, if there's melancholy, sadness or longing, I find these things much easier to express in Turkish, whereas humor, satire and irony, I think is much easier in English. I wanted to ask you about reading in Spanish and whether you have any Spanish writers that you love particularly. Uh, I'm, I'm very curious about particularly South American authors. Mm. And I find many of the questions that they deal with about memory, belonging, sorrow, uh, you know, these conflicts in society, how the individual can be alienated from the culture where he or she comes from, and yet at the same time you're emotionally attached to that culture, all of those things resonate with me. So I, I try to um, follow uh, particularly South American authors. Do you translate your own work? No, I don't translate my own work. Actually, about 15 years ago, I started writing in English first. And ever since then, each novel, after I finished, is translated into Turkish by a professional translator. Oh. And then I take that translation and I rewrite it. Oh. So it's a bit insane, you know, because you have to work maybe twice as much. But I enjoy it. But I can't do the translation myself because it's a completely different talent I don't have that talent. Also, I think I would have changed the text so much. Do you, you know? ever discover things yeah. about 
the words and the writing and things about your own novels that you didn't notice before they were translated. Yes, and uh, to be honest, I have seen some books that are much better and stronger in, <laughs> in their translated forms than in their original form. Uh, and that's thanks to the work of the translators. I think they're doing an, an amazing job and they and there's very little recognition for the work that they do. Mm. Even on book jackets, their names are written in very small print. Um, many of them earn very little money. I think we owe a lot to our translators. You know, when I look at, at which countries where, my, where are my books better known, mm. I do know that I worked with a very good translator and, and that had made a huge difference. Books feel so private and intimate and I think there's lots of writing that feels very sort of solitary, but actually the books that are in, in your head, that's just the beginning of their life and then, you know, the journey and it, it takes a village. There are so many Absolutely. people and there's, I think the best writers I know are so... Yeah aware of that and I think yeah. you know you absolutely yeah, it are. is definitely a teamwork and it's a huge blessing for a writer I think to work primarily with a good editor you know mm. you are fortunate if you have a good editor uh, someone who understands you your, what you're trying to say what you're trying to, to share with the world so to me that that's incredibly important but as you said it's there's a there's a big group you know behind every every book the, from the book jacket designers to the copy editors, mm. a lot of work goes into each and every book. I've just seen a book I wanted to ask mm. you about. Something I adore about your writing is the presence of food. And f- <laughs> food being almost a, yeah. a separate sense, it's so powerful. And I just saw you've got a Marco Pierre White's The Devil yes. in the Kitchen, yes. which is not a book I necessarily would have expected to see <laughs> on your shelf. I love reading about food and cooking. I, I, I also read cookbooks a lot. And sometimes readers think that I'm a good chef myself, but just the opposite. I'm very, very bad. You know, if, if I were to cook anything, that, would, that wouldn't taste nice at all. But I'm someone who's very curious about the history, culture of food, and I read lots of recipes. So do you have any yeah. in here? Which cookbooks do you read? Um, I have lots of cookbooks. I'm sure they're just scattered. This is where we have to kind of go up the ladder or something, isn't it? Um, um, there's one here. Ah, salt, fat, acid, heat. Mm-hmm. It's like, because I know this has been huge, yeah. huge probably, but you're the first person I've talked to who's got mm. this. It's a really beautiful book. So I uh, only yeah. know of this through the Netflix yeah. series, but what's mm. it about? God, the illustrations are gorgeous. The illustrations are gorgeous. And also so universal, isn't it? I mean, that's the beauty of, of food. It goes beyond national borders, ethnic borders. Sometimes I, you know, joke, I say in the Middle East, we have this, like, baklava wars. Who does baklava belong to? Is it a Turkish thing? Is it a Greek baklava? Is it Lebanese baklava, Syrian baklava? But there's no such thing. It belongs to all of us, right? So um, you can't just are reduce there, it to one single... There are variations. Is it, what's different? between the other baklavas and a Turkish baklava? <laughs> well, um, I, I think in many parts of the Middle East, sometimes it's, I find it sweeter. In, in Turkey, we don't make it as sweet. It has to be more crispy in Turkey. So, so is that with the getting the... I, I the dough like the yeah. very oh, you much, like so it. I'm okay. very curious <laughs> about this and how. Because yeah. sometimes it's... I don't like... I mean, I, I love them all. They're all delicious. But I'd rather have a crispy one. You know, sometimes it's really almost soggy with honey and it's True. just a bit... A bit too much. You yeah. ca- I can't eat it in the quantities that I'd like to eat same, it. <laughs> <Isn't that> same. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I like it when it's less sweet and, and more crispy. Same, yeah. Other than in your own books, which stories do you think of when you think about meals that characters eat in books and, and food descriptions that you love? You know, I'm thinking about, for instance, my, um, my previous book, The Three Daughters of Eve. Mm. The whole novel takes place across a long, lengthy supper scene. There are flashbacks, mm. so we travel between Istanbul and Oxford. Mm. But this long supper scene in Istanbul, to me, it was very important to describe that mm. in a very vivid way. So there are starters and the meals and the desserts. And throughout that um, supper, what people think, you know, think about, talk about, everything that I observed maybe, so, so many things that I observed in 2015 seeped into that novel um, so much so that at some point I wanted to call it the, the Last Supper of the Turkish Bourgeoisie, ah. the, the novel. I'm mentioning this because it was a strange time in Turkey. There was a lot of, uh, there were many terror attacks in Turkey and, uh, and people were talking about the loss of democracy. So you would go to these dinners between friends and one moment people would be talking about very mundane things like their bags or diets mm. and detox and then someone would check their twitter feed and the next moment they would be talking about maybe um, a bomb had exploded somewhere and so they would be talking about death and that almost schizophrenic fragmentation you know of how we switch from very mundane mm. trivial issues into suddenly more existential concerns, and then back. And then I've been observing all of that. by this rhythm yeah. of, oh, but here's the soup, here's the lamb, while exactly. you're kind of, people are dying. And here's the chocolates, and, the, you know, that, that to me was quite interesting. I mean, when politics is too heavy, when mm. life becomes too heavy, how people become even more interested in, you know, all those tiny details mm. about food and, and diet. It's, it's a way, it's an escape too, in a way. I think you're right that it's so interesting that even in times of great heaviness that we do, we seek the light to make yeah. sense of things. We long for lightness too, yeah. So maybe I can share with you some more cookbooks. There's one here that I like a lot, Yashim Cooks, Istanbul, Jason Goodwins. And he's, as you know, an author and at the same time historian. And, and I love this book because... Oh, I love He's, that there's a beautiful picture of the plate. The sense yes, that yeah. it's so much more about. Yeah, it's not just the food itself, it's not just and the food. markets, yeah. and the, the it's the markets, the culture, the history. You know, the traditions surrounding it. Mm. I like this kind of cookbooks a lot. When you first became sort of aware of when you first started learning English and started becoming aware of the culture, were there any books you read that you felt were really sort of this is about Englishness, or I don't know if it was. P.G. Woodhouse or Paddington or someone a bit more heavyweight? (laughs) To me, I think two people have been incredibly important. One of them was Charles Dickens Ah. as I was growing up. And I think there are many people who, like me, have read Dickens at an early age before coming to the UK without having any idea about this country. And yet Dickens somehow almost gives you a familiar world 19th century England might, you know, be very familiar to someone living very far away from the Western world, like someone living in Istanbul, like me, with all its alleys and side streets and conflicts, extremes between poverty and, you know, the inequality. So lots of things resonated with me um, when I read Dickens. I think A Tale of Two Cities, it was... 
the first Dickens book that I've read, and, and it was just really mind-opening. I didn't know you could write books like that. And another book that stayed with me, and actually one book that I've read many, many times I had to go back, was Orlando, oh. Virginia Woolf's, and that was fascinating. It was, to me, like freedom. You could go beyond gender, beyond nationality, beyond time, geography, space, you know, a complete sense of freedom as the as the hero becomes a heroine. Mm. And that transformation takes place actually in, in, in Turkey in the book. Lots of things about that novel spoke to me very, very dearly. It's it's I, I embraced it, I think. I think that's so important for mm. any writer. There is yeah. that book when you connect with something so deeply like, this is allowed this is a, a world yes. that you can show this yes. is something you can yes. explore I wanted to ask whether there are any bits of London where you feel very much as though you're in the England you imagined when you were reading Dickens or whether it's weird to to come for the first time and think oh no this isn't what I thought it was going to be you know I I walk a lot around London I mean um East, west, north, south. I try to go to very different neighborhoods. And I also travel quite a bit within the UK. And I listen to people a lot. I, I, I'm a listener, you know, and I, and I listen to two things, what they say to me, but also how they say it, with what kind of energy, the choice of words. So I love that. I, I don't like to be in one single echo chamber. And to me, the best way to get to know a city is by paying attention to the griff the graffiti, you know, the, the wall writings. Mm. What do people scribble on the walls? Those anonymous bits where we express our anger, longing, love, frustration, some of them political, some of them very personal. I love collecting those things. So um, definitely there are lots of parts in East London where I feel very, very at home, very much at home as if I'm in Istanbul. Um, but wherever I go, I think I try to pay attention to the streets. To me, that's very important. It reminds me of something that you wrote, I think, I hope this is you, about what, um, one of your characters saying that when someone, when a man is drunk, you okay. can tell what state things are in, where if he's, if yeah. things are good, he'll be sad about his sweetheart, but if things are bad, it'll be his country, his sweetheart, who is his sweetheart, who's left him. Yeah, so it is, um, in a democracy, when a man gets drunk... He cries, what happened to my sweetheart? But in a, in a place where there is no democracy, when a man gets drunk, he cries, what happened to, me, to my sweet country? Um, and I think that's a feeling many people share all over the world. You know, what's Thank happening to so my sweet country? I'm so sorry I butchered the line. Producer no, no, Dale, no. can we take out my stabbing? <laughs> no, I so appreciate that you, 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 know, you mentioned it. it. The, yeah. the idea really, really landed in my head. Oh, I've just seen a writer I really love um, who is a... Uh, a friend of ours, another ah. podcast, Rowan Coleman, ah, We're All Made of Stars. A friend, yes, indeed. I love the, the romance of mm. her books. Do you read many love stories? I, I read everything, anything that speaks to me, that you know I'm curious about. I make no distinction between genres. I don't like any of that. I don't like to put labels on books. Um, and then when some people talk about highbrow literature versus lit law, I don't even know what that means. I don't like it. I think we, we should read all the time mm. and and try to keep our reading lists as diverse as possible so i do some some people you read because you enjoy their style and the language just for the sheer pleasure mm. of language some others you're drawn to because of the subject yeah. and then there are books you read without knowing why you're reading it and that, those are the most beautiful ones because you don't attribute a function 
to that particular book. So I'm I'm just drawn to to, to books um, for all kinds of reasons, and and I like to keep it very eclectic. Yeah. yeah. Is there a filing system here, or do no. the books? What I absolutely love as well. I hope I can say is the mix of them. Um, the way that your books are, it's not kind of, you know, the traditional vertical spines out lines. Yeah. They're horizontal, they're piled up. <laughs> this is Tetris. You are it's getting as many books into the space as you yeah. possibly can fit. It is, it is Tetris, really. You have to use the space um, wisely. And actually, they keep changing places all the time because, you know, you, you remember one book, you, you go back to it. I, I, I like it when they, when they keep, when, you know, moving around. I am someone who likes tattered books. Mm. I don't keep my books very clean. I love books with coffee stains, tea stains. But maybe I should also tell you, for many years, I was not able to keep a library together because I lived a very nomadic life. So at some point, when I was in Arizona, I lived in Tucson, just half an hour away from the Mexican border. Um, I had Remember, I, had, I, I remember back then, I had books, boxes of books in Istanbul, boxes of books in Boston, and so if you live a very peripatetic life, you can't really keep your books Is together. Were you teaching at TSM? Were you at the university? I was teaching there, but I think, I mean, when I look at back, I, I realise, of course, there have been so many different cities and cultures. I was born in France, in Strasbourg, and shortly afterwards my parents got separated, and my father stayed in France. My mother brought me to Ankara, the capital of Turkey, for her, Turkey was motherland. For me, it was a new country. And we ended up in a very conservative, very patriarchal neighborhood in the middle of Ankara. This was my maternal grandmother's house. And it was a very interesting place, her house, full of um, evil eye beads and coffee cups. You know, she would melt lead. Um, and she was an oral... She was, she was a bit of a healer. And she... Was the lead something she used? To ward off the lead. evil. Ward off the evil eye. And people would come to her... You know, it was, a, it was a world that was full of magic, spirituality, uh, oral culture, storytelling, the stories of the Middle East, you know, centuries of accumulation. And then I, around the time I was 10, my mother became a diplomat. She and I traveled quite a bit, Spain, Amman, Jordan, Germany, Cologne. Then in my early 20s, I moved to Istanbul. I lived many, many years in Istanbul. I wrote, I mean, so many of my books in, in this city. But I also felt quite suffocated there. So after a while, I went to Boston, Michigan, Arizona, back to Istanbul, and then London. So when you live in, you know, in very different places, you don't really keep your books together. And you have to understand that books have a destiny of their own. Yes. They have journeys of their own. We are not... We don't possess them, you know. That's, wanted, that's important to me. I wanted to ask about um, those first years in Turkey and the storytelling and the sort of this great oral tradition. With the stories you were hearing, was it a mix of you reading things and you being told stories by your family? Or was it much more that stories were something that you listened to rather than you read? I was a listener back then, um, and, and I was an introverted child, um, so I wouldn't speak much, but just, just keep listening. I think in many ways I felt like the other in that community. I mean, I did not grow up in a traditional family environment. My mother, when she came back to Turkey, she was a young divorcee and she had no diploma, no career, nothing to fall back on because... I'm guessing that yeah. 
that's hard for any woman at any time, yeah. but I imagine in that place, that yeah. time's especially tough. It was, it was quite unusual and it was very tough because she had dropped out of university when she got married, thinking love would be enough. So when she came back with a toddler, really she had nothing to rely on. And I remember people immediately trying to find a husband for her because a young divorcee is seen as a threat to the, mm. to the order uh, in a conservative society. And it was my maternal grandmother who intervened and said, no, you should go back to university, you should have a diploma, career, choices in life. Mm. I, until you're ready, I'm going to raise my granddaughter. You know, whenever you're ready, come. And that's when uh, she became a diplomat. Yeah, and so uh, that is why I, I grew up, you know, I think observing these two women, my mom is very westernized, very modern, secular. Eventually, of course, she became very well educated. She's very rational. Uh, my grandma is pretty much the opposite, very Eastern, irrational, very spiritual, um, less educated, but wise mm. in her own way. But what remained with me, I think, was the sisterhood between them. So, you know, referring to your book, uh, to me, that is incredibly important. When women from different backgrounds, with different worldviews, can support each other. And I think that's so powerful yeah. and so important about, you know, the work you do and what you do as an activist, that recognising that you don't have to completely agree, agree with all women in order, you know, to, to love them and to support them and help them. I've just seen My Brilliant Friend, and I think that's a really interesting book to talk about in terms of, I suppose, the duality of cultures and also things being translated. Absolutely. And, and of course, women, friendships, memory, belonging, you know. To me, it's fascinating. Two people can experience the same incident and yet we remember it differently as years go back. And so memory is it's quite active, isn't it? It's mm. not just one static it's thing. Like we no, reconstruct there, there it, yeah. There are no reliable narrators. No, <laughs> but it's, it's okay to recognise that, yeah. I know, I mean, that book particularly, I know is really, you know, passed among girlfriends and mm. sisters and people oh, saying, yeah. look, you need to know this. Which books do you kind of lend to people the most or recommend to people the most? What's the last book you read and you sort of wanted to tell everybody in your life, I think you have to read this, you'd love it. Well, one book that I've been talking about a lot is Amateur. It's by Thomas Page McBee. I think it's a, it's a fascinating book about the first trans man in the boxing ring, how he becomes an, an amateur boxer. But of course, it's a book about masculinity, gender, written with amazing openness, honesty, and at the same time, compassion. Is it a yeah. novel or is it a memoir? It is a memoir. Oh, wow. And at the time when we were talking about masculinity, gender, I think it brings a very fresh approach and a very human approach, yeah. I know lots of brilliant women writing brilliantly about womanhood. And obviously, you could say in some ways, like, all men have been doing is writing about being men for years. But I think that that conversation is changing and shifting now. And I think it's time for it to become much less swaggery and more vulnerable. And I'm excited to read more of those vulnerable books from men. Absolutely. And I think we also need to understand... Um, from male suicides to mental health problems, there's a lot of pressure on young men. And we need the kind of feminist narrative that understands that, yeah. that embraces that, yes. that connects with that. I think I find it very important because it is obvious that patriarchal systems make women unhappy, mm. but they also make men unhappy. Absolutely. You know, they can't be happy in that system yeah. either, particularly where I come from, countries like Turkey. I see a lot of pressure on young men 
to conform to one given description of masculinity. If for whatever reason you do not conform, then you are belittled, you know, ostracized, and sometimes women take part in that as well. Mm. In one of my novels, Honor, I wanted to look at this notion of honor and maybe question a little bit about, you know, how we raise our sons, like the little sultans in the family. Yes. I find that very problematic. And, and so... It, it is very important to understand that feminism never sees and should never see uh, patriarchy as something that men mm. do to women. It's far more complicated and layered than that, and we need to talk about how masculinity is constructed, how it becomes a straitjacket, why gender inequality isn't good for anyone at the end of the day. And I sincerely believe uh, women right now, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, the global sisterhood, I call it, really so much of the energy and motivation for political transformation for a better world comes from women's movement. Yes. And it should be like that. So to me, it's very exciting. But I do sincerely believe it needs to be a global sisterhood. Mm. It, needs, it needs to be diverse. It needs to go hand in hand with LGBT mm. rights, you know, question things together. But it, all, it should also invite men mm. to, to, to the movement, particularly Absolutely. young men. It's got to you be know, as, as inclusive as it possible. It definitely should be inclusive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We'll be back to Elif soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book worth so much more than the cover price that you feel guilty about not saying something to the bookseller. This week, it's The Secret History by Donna Tartt. You've probably read it, but just in case, you'd be meaning to get round to it for ages. Go now. Tartt studied at Bennington, the infamous liberal arts college, alongside a weird collection of literary celebrities and general celebrities. The US edition of Esquire just published a compelling oral history of everyone's experiences at Bennington in the late 80s and early 90s. And while the secret history is as inventive a novel as they come, it's close enough to the Bennington world to be compellingly gossipy too. 
It's narrated by Richard, the outsider who's trying to make sense of his friendship in connection with a very small group of wealthy, self-assured students who have an intense relationship with their classics teacher. But there's a murder and incest, and that's not even the weirdest stuff that happens. There's an eerie singularity in the narrative voice. Reading this is like being thrust into a tunnel and only being able to move forward. Something I loved is that you glimpse Brett Easton Ellis' world in brief vignettes through doors left ajar. This book is brilliant on its own and it makes the rules of attraction much more palatable. The Secret History is published by Penguin Books. Now back to Elif. May I come back to what you said earlier? It's I liked it a lot. You mentioned how books can be shared and, you know, what are the books that you give. To me, that's so important. I think it, particularly in countries like Turkey, and I'm assuming it's the same in India, Pakistan, because readers tell me it is similar there, a book is not necessarily a personal item. You know, if you like it, um, you pass it on. You give it to your you know, aunt, mm. and your aunt sends it to her neighbour, and the neighbour sends it to, to her son. So to me that's very important, that word of mouth, sharing. Mm. I have seen over the years, when, whenever I had a book signing day, people would bring these books that have been underlined by different coloured pens, because different people have read the same copy, and they've underlined different sentences. That is incredibly precious and valuable. And I think especially in countries where there's no proper freedom of speech, mm. a lot of pressure on the publishing industry. Despite all of that, if books survive, if books thrive, we really owe it to the readers mm. who keep sharing the stories. So I love book clubs. I love the idea of people sharing the same copy and talking about that. That, that word of mouth, to me, is incredibly precious. Absolutely. If the book is blood, then it's the readers that are, you know, the heart and the oxygen yeah. and the pump, you yeah. know, and otherwise the blood's useless. <laughs> it's just true, true. there. Yeah. It's only relevant if you put it into a body and move yeah. it around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you were to think of a book that you really love, that you would like to see taught in schools to, to boys and girls, something that's really mm. has taught you a lot about humanity, um, what would you most like to suggest? Oh, there's so many. You see, I see. Um, I've just seen yeah. um, David Sedaris, which is probably yes. not the book that you're thinking about. But <laughs> it's I think there's a lot oh, in David Sedaris that would be useful for everybody to absolutely read. Absolutely wonderful. And of course, I think humor is so important. You know, when we can laugh together, not laugh at someone at their expense, mm. but you know, including ourselves laugh in a compassionate mm. way, embracing our own follies and weaknesses. I find that very, very important. And I think it's not a coincidence that wherever there's authoritarianism on the rise, you will see a very visible drop in the levels of humour in mm. that society. You know, Suddenly humour becomes impossible. Yes. It becomes impossible to do that in the public space. So to, to me... The, Humour and democracy, they go hand in hand. You can breathe. Unrelated, but I've just seen a book that I've never seen on anyone else's shelf before. I read this when I was a teenager. I don't know, I don't know, quite wiggle it out. Um, and I remember loving it, but also just being absolutely baffled by it. Uh, Light Water for Chocolate by Laura oh, yeah. Esquivel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when did you read that book? It's been a while. That's one of my older books, yes. 
very sensual and yes, beautiful. My mum had. I had to kind of sneak off her shelf. I just, I don't know what it was, but I had a sense like, oh, this isn't something she's mentioned. There might be something interesting here, and there was. Lots of kind of amazing magic realism and things that I didn't really understand when I read it, and I've read other books since and sort of thought, oh, that's all part of that tradition. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I mean, we've, we're using today magic realism. Maybe we're not using the word enough anymore because uh, there was a time when it was used more widely and mm. I think people don't mention it as much today. But I love that tradition. And when I look at, back at my own life, you know, I t- told you about my grandmother's house. It was a world full of magic. Mm. And I remember sitting by the window and looking outside the window and this was a time, so I'm talking about late 1970s Turkey. It was a time of political violence and escalation. And so almost every day there would be a bomb exploding on the streets. And I, so I remember thinking about the world inside the house with its stories and spirituality and magic and the world outside the house with its conflicts and clashes and antagonisms. And maybe there's a part of me that wants to bridge those two worlds in my own writing. I wonder whether one can really live with the presence of death in that way without also living with the presence of magic, whether you need the latter to make sense of the former, especially when you're young. True, true, true. And maybe this is something we also see in Irish literature. I mean, to me, it's incredible. Whenever I go to Ireland, whenever I do a book event in Ireland, I feel so at home. And when I read Irish novelists, poets as well again this it's something resonates very deeply with me yeah we just um at right at the start of the year we went to ireland to record some mm. podcasts and we sort of said exactly the same thing like, they love writers here i want to they live here them. i want to move here <laughs> they, they do indeed they sincerely do yeah. which irish writers do you love well i mean Anne Enright. there must be one mm. Anne Enright here um sebastian barry but these are very much books about humanity aren't they I suppose you can make the argument about every novel but about the realities of I think that sometimes it's the smallest things in life that become the biggest things yeah 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 and also of course family the things you let go forgive forget um, and the things you can never forget but still you find a way to move beyond those moments in time it's to to me there's a lot I'm lots of layers Mm. Yeah. Do you reread books? I do, I do. I mean, I mean, looking at the yeah. number of books here, I don't know how. Um, oh, you would, but um, what's the book that you think you've read the most? Probably Orlando. <laughs> I mean, when I yeah, over the years. Although I, I also love, you know, when I've read a book, I love a book. Sometimes I can just reread the ending. Or to me, books have multiple doors, especially mm. once you have, you know, if you've read it once, you don't have to go just follow a linear progress. Yeah. There are some books that allow you to do that. And I, and I love that. For instance, Rumi allows you to do mm. that. You know, whenever I read Rumi's poems or little stories, I can go backwards, mm. forwards, I can jump. I love those kinds of books. I'm traveling. Yeah. yeah, 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 of course. I wanted to ask whether mm. there are any books that you've, struggled with or not really liked initially and then come back to at a different point in your life and suddenly connected with it in a different way? Well, I think Hilary Mantel's Wolf ah. Hall, um, because the first time I started reading, I was in Istanbul and somehow I couldn't connect with the book, even though I loved the beginning and everything. 
And then I r started reading in earnest when I moved to London, and I loved it, loved it. But it took a... Yeah, it, I think it was only upon second reading that... I'm yeah. so ashamed to admit this. I've never read Wolf Hall. I've always really? been quite nervous of it. Really? And I yeah. get a bit nervous of um, mm. historical fiction mm. because I'm like, well, how much of this is going to be like me doing the Tudors at school again and how much of it's sure, going to be the sure. story. But I yes, should just... Yeah. I'm 34. Yeah. I need to get over this. Yes, I need to have a go. Definitely. <laughs> over the years, I've judged various prizes, each, each of them very different. I chaired the Welcome Book Prize this year. Oh, and yes, of course. Amateur was on our shortlist. Uh, AstroTurf was also one of the contenders. So, yeah, and I can, maybe you can see my year of rest and relaxation there. I love the trauma book. cleaner. They're all, yeah, our books for the Welcome Book Prize. Has it's it's a fascinating prize. It has been announced. Mm. <laughs> uh, Will Eves, Murmur. Ah, oh, fascinating. Yeah, Yes, and it's a wonderful, wonderful book. I, I, I loved Murmur. What is it like being part of that world? Do you love having the opportunity to work out what books are, you know, of sort of such great merit and to celebrate them? Or is it ever quite stressful having to kind of make choices? Well, it's something that's very subjective. Well, it also depends on the judges. We were very fortunate. Um, we had a great team of judges and... Of course, it doesn't mean that you always agree, and that's the mm. beauty of it, but everyone respected each other's opinion, and perhaps most, more importantly, we respected each and every book on the table because so much work and faith mm. has gone, you know, dedication has gone into every title. I think judges need to approach every book with that kind of respect, with that kind of recognition. And I love those discussions we have around the table because... It's a very different experience. I mean, when we read, we're alone, right? Like Walter Benjamin said, uh, the novel in particular is the loneliest form of art. Mm. The writer is lonely, alone, and so is the reader. You go into that inner space, and that's precious. But then when you start talking about the book and what it meant to you and what you liked about it or did not like about mm. that, you have to also re revise your own views, mm. Uh, and and th that is a different intellectual challenge. And I like that, really. I love those conversations. I think it must be quite difficult sometimes because what's that line about how every single novel is different to every reader, that no sure. two, you yeah. know, it's never the same. Definitely. And sometimes I think that explaining what you love mm -hmm. about a book and why you've responded to it, mm -hmm. is, it's very, very intimate and personal and it goes mm -hmm. beyond the, the skill mm -hmm. and the elegance of the writing or, yeah. or the plot. And something else that I'm curious about at the moment is how, in these social media times, I really catch myself of reading things and absolutely adoring them and being immersed and having to fight the urge to immediately go off on Twitter or Instagram and say, oh, look at this book, it's great, because yes. I, obviously I want more than anything to celebrate the books I love, but I don't want to take myself out of it, and I worry that we're losing that immersion sometimes. True. And of course, it's a very different rhythm, isn't it? Mm. Because we, in our daily lives, we live a very fast changing, we live in a very fast changing world and we're always in the company of other people. Most of our energy seeps outside. Mm. When you're reading a novel, you have to slow down. You have to go within, you know, build an inner space. But precisely because of that, I think novels are very important. Fiction is very important. It really breaks my heart when I hear people say, oh, I read important stuff, I read realistic stuff, you know, I don't have time for fiction, I want to learn about history and politics. 
fiction is about everything. There is history in fiction, mm. there is politics in fiction. So when, when people make those distinctions, I, I, I feel very sad. And I honestly think fiction rehumanizes people yes. who have been dehumanized. It, it really gives us a very different type of cognitive flexibility, encourages us mm. to see things from a different perspective. To be able to do that is, is an intellectual challenge, but also a spiritual challenge I sometimes. Ha- and I, I think you've spoken about this with the, as we move further away from mm. democracy and everything becomes polarised and that lack of nuance and that, well, you either think this or you think this, yeah. and that fiction is the space where there can be so much yeah. very important cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I've, I'm very critical of binary oppositions. We're constantly being told that we have only two options. Mm. Are you this or are you that? Are you here or, you know? That, that is a very toxic language. Mm. And then we divide into us versus them and we forget what we have in common. Mm. So to me, arts can play an important role in today's mm. polarised world. And I do believe that writers need to speak up we can't be non-political. Yes. But when I say that, I'm not talking about party politics. I'm definitely not mm. talking about partisan politics. Just to express your views and to speak up on issues that are essential for democracy, like rule of law, separation of powers, women's mm. rights, minority rights, you know, freedom of speech. There are all these issues and human rights where we cannot be silent. Absolutely, because I think that party politics is yeah. such a convenient way of... Yeah compartmentalizing people and disempowering them in many ways the age we're living in is so complex and there's so much uncertainty in there many people find that hard Mm. understandably you know every day we're bombarded with information um too much is happening at the same time everywhere and that creates a desire, a longing in many people for simplicity. Mm. You know, we want to go back to those old, good old days when things were simpler. But that's an illusion. Yes. That kind of nostalgia creates an illusion. Back in those days, things weren't as golden as we tend to think. Um, but my point is, when things are too complex and it feels like there's too much chaos going on, this hunger for simplicity can have very dangerous political implications mm. because this is exactly when the demagogue enters into the picture. The, de- the demagogue, especially populist demagogues, they tell us, you know what, things are simple and I'm going to give you that, you know, just follow me, just be with me. We're going to build the walls and we're going to be us versus them and everything will be simple because for particularly for populists, um, there's no such thing as a diverse society they mm. on, they like to think that people is composed of a monolithic whole and they represent that voice of the people they don't understand that in fact we're all very different and politics is about compromise coexistence you know it's mo- it's a much more fluid world as you said they're not comfortable with that so i think there's an anti-pluralistic essence mm. in in populism that is very worrisome and um, to bring us back to books i was thinking about you mentioning dickens and why it's so 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 important that that endures because it's about a time that people might think they're nostalgic for but it wasn't simple and nobody would want to live like that nobody would want that for for people and to have people capturing and recording the you know those realities and i think it's you know when you think of all of these universes that you have immersed yourself in and how people are going to keep immersing themselves in them. It's quite thrilling. I think if we remember all of this, then we're going to be okay. 
Yeah, I think we forget one fundamental thing. Who is telling the story? The story changes depending on um, each and everyone's experiences as we go back in time. You know, for instance, when I talk about the Ottoman Empire, the empire that the Sultan experienced, let's say, in 19th century, was a very different world than the concubine experienced. Mm. How would I feel if I were an Armenian silversmith or a Jewish miller? Or, um, you know, what was the life of a prostitute like, people who had to accompany the army? You know, what was the life of a peasant like? Etc. When you ask these micro questions about human beings, then you realize there's not a single truth that can be, or a single history that can be applied to everyone. And actually, the history that we read about in textbooks often ignores and silences the stories of the others and just marginalizes them. So I think it's very important that fiction pays attention to the to the silenced and the forgotten. I mean, I think lots of people have said this, but I know Mary Beard is often asked, oh, you know, if you go back to any point in history, what would it be? It's like, yeah. are you kidding me? This is fine. The, yeah. You know, yeah. 2019 is <laughs> fine. Have you, do you know history? It would yeah. only worked out well for the guys. Yeah, I'm just going to have a little look yes. at the end. I want to talk about this, what do you call it? It's not statue, but statuette. Is that what you call it? But oh, yeah, this broken, and my, my daughter tried to glue it, as you can see, not as successful. <laughs> so this is um, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, um, a little statuette, wooden, <laughs> carved. Oh, it's wooden. Yeah, oh, and, and this is from Madrid, actually. This is from oh, Spain. As you can see, it's you know chipped and tattered and broken in parts but I love it I love it a lot so is this from when you first lived in Madrid has this travelled with you it has travelled with me and it's one of the few objects that I've you know kept as I said when you're nomadic you don't keep too many too many objects I don't collect objects but this one I have kept with me and I I remember when I went to school in Madrid children would be asking me about what happened to Cervantes' arm do you know the story of his arm? In, he fought in the in the Battle of Lepanto, which was between the Christian army and the Ottomans, and he lost his arm. This great writer, the author of Don Quixote de la Mancha, um, thankfully it wasn't his right arm. I think he was right-handed, so he was able to he ride. Still <laughs> he could still ride, but um, I, as a Turkish child, of course, to me it was quite shocking when people, when the other kids were asking, you know, what did you do to Cervantes? Um, so, did you grow up with the story of Cervantes in in Turkey? We were aware of his. In Turkey, I'd never heard that he had fought in the, you know, taken so, part in the in in the, in the battle. And so no. they were Children blaming you. For they it. were blaming you. That's leaving. Yeah. You've got the arm somewhere <laughs> in a sort of mounted on the wall in a museum. Well, that's the thing. I mean. I, maybe I have to think about national identity, collective identities at an early age. You know, what does it mean? Can I just be just myself? As simple as that. Why do we have to think that we're representing collective identities? It was an interesting time. I mean, Turkey had got zero points in Eurovision Song Contest. I would go to school and the kids would be uh, talking about that. A Turkish terrorist had tried to kill the Pope so that when I would go to school... The kids would ask that. And I remember thinking at that early age, you know, I wish I were 
I were Dutch or Norwegian, you know, because that seemed, it seemed like they didn't have to deal with these mm. questions about politics and, and religion and clashes. It seemed easier to be Dutch or Norwegian to my 11-old mind. That's what I thought back then. Did yeah. you read um, Cervantes? Did you read Don Quixote in Madrid? Yeah, I love, I love Don Quixote. I find it incredibly important. Of course, there's all these kinds of debates now, and we do know that it's not the first novel in, in, in world literature, but definitely one of the most important ones, and it's incredibly layered. Mm. And I think it's it's a book, sometimes we, we think we've already read it, you know, when we were younger and leave it behind, but it's a, it's a book you can revisit, you know, many many times in your life. About identity, I think it's it's a question that matters to me a lot, and I like to believe, I like to think that I have multiple belongings mm. rather than an identity. So, of course, I'm an Istanbulite. I'm very attached to Istanbul, and I think it it does come with me wherever I go, but I also feel attached to the Aegean, the Balkan. There's so many elements in my soul from the Middle East. You know, I will also carry them with me, and I'm also a European by birth, by choice. Over the years, I've become a Londoner, a British citizen. And despite what politicians say today, I want to think of myself as a world citizen and the global soul, if I may. So to me, it's important to have multiple belongings. And I, th- I, don't, I do not believe that people who have multiple belongings have no sense of attachment to a place or culture. Just the opposite, actually. You appreciate it even more when you're aware of many cultures at the same time. You know, when I first came to this country, now it's been more more than 10 years, almost, I, I used to think British people are so calm when they talk about politics. And I think that has changed. You know, we're not calm when we talk about politics anymore. Um, but to me, one of the biggest shifts I observe is more and more British authors are talking about politics or writing political work, whether it's stories or novels, or in their interviews, they're making political statements. This wasn't always the case. Whereas for us Turkish writers or writers from all wounded countries and wobbly countries, such as, you know, Egypt, Turkey, Nigeria, Pakistan, Venezuela, Philippines, Russia, the the list is so long. If you happen to be a storyteller from such countries, you don't have the luxury of being non-political. You know, and also I am a feminist, and I believe one of the many, many wonderful things that women's movements of past generations mm. taught us was that politics is not necessarily about political parties mm. or the parliament. The personal is also political. So if you describe politics in such a broad way, again, you can't be non-political. But the reason why I'm mentioning is this because I, I, th- I see more and more Western authors, European mm. authors too, but particularly here in the UK, authors now speaking up about political issues, and I think it's important. Something I found very, very affecting last summer was the number of, I think, Irish and also English authors writing about the abortion referendum, and in all kinds of ways. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but in her book, uh, Marion Keyes, who wrote The Break, someone who is a magnificent writer, frequently dismissed for being very commercial, who I think, the way she wrote about that story, I think she changed the world she i think had a, influenced a lot of people to to vote for yep. you know in a way that supported vulnerable women and people who otherwise wouldn't have done that and i think that's well and you know we think political writing is quite either obscure or people do it in a way it's very hard to access but no it needs to be urgent and for everyone um I'm going to come back to um 
old Ferrante again. I keep bringing her up, but about you know the the, stu- the protests and the pamphlets, and almost that's how she learns to write with urgency. Of course, with urgency, and also you make it more human, right? You have to express it. Um, maybe you have limited amount of time and space. You have to think carefully about the words mm. you use. That's an incredible practice. But but I hear what you're saying, and I think writers, storytellers can have an impact. Mm. We can. Um, and we need to be more involved in the in the public space. But to be honest, I think we all are, not only writers. I think we live in an age in which we all need to become more active citizens, mm. more engaged, not only in the civic space, but also in the digital space. Yes. Just keep an eye. To me, it's heartbreaking to see how words are now being used in a very toxic mm. way to divide us, to create more tribes and tribes within tribes. So... Um, we have to be awake and alert and engaged citizens, all of us. Yeah. Oh, beautiful, <laughs> ones. I oh, love stationery, you know, ah. I can never get enough notebooks. It's just uh, probably every month I spend so much money on, on and books and notebooks. And yeah. packeted and unopened <laughs> These write in pink. Excellent. I write in pink and purple. I love it. Yeah. I really love it. Yeah. Do you have a stationary wish list? Are there things that you sort of dream about and fetishise? Or are you more of an impulse purchaser? I, I am, I think, an impulse purchaser, but that impulse is endless, so I keep <laughs> <laughs> buying yeah, stationary pens, fountain pens. Although, I have to tell you, I was, um, I was left-handed as a child. And uh, back then in Turkey, people thought that was wrong, and I was converted to right-hand. Um, that took a long time. I found it very difficult. Long story short, even today, I don't like, I don't write, you know, longhand. I don't like my handwriting, even if I have to hold a pen for more than a few minutes. Do you ever feel very, with your left yeah. hand or is it uncomfortable? I do everything yeah. else with my left hand, but writing with my right hand because of the way I've, I've learned at school. But the reason I'm mentioning this is because for me, writing on keyboard and before that typewriters was like freedom. That was the only time when my left hand and right hand could connect. Otherwise, when I'm holding a pen, I don't feel like I, like the two sides of my body are connected. Even though you love notebooks. <laughs> I love notebooks, but you, you have to see my handwriting. It's just completely... I like to think this is you. I feel like if you have enough stationery, you will master the... You'll get revenge on the... Um... Yeah, I think I love paper. I'm a big fan of the smell, the touch, the feel of paper. Do you ever read books digitally or do you prefer to have them as paper? I do read digitally, especially when I'm travelling. So I don't be little, you know ebooks technology at all i think the format will change we have to understand that once upon a time books were a novelty we need to understand mm. that what won't change however is our need for stories mm. and because that's so ancient and universal yeah Absolutely. i want to tell you first i should talk about a few objects and even though it's very simple the headphones are very important to me are they noise cancelling no they create more noise because I don't like silence, I can't write in silence, and I feel very uncomfortable when there's a lot of silence around. So, again, when I was living in Istanbul, I would always keep the windows open, and the part of the city where I lived was quite bohemian, very cosmopolitan part of the city that was even noisier at night than during the day. And I love that hearing the street vendors, you know, shouting, yelling, people yelling at each other in traffic. On top of that, I always listen to loud, usually very aggressive music. 
I like gothic metal, you know, more industrial metal. Um, and, and I usually listen to one song. It's, it's like a loop. That was not what I was expecting <laughs> you to say. So who are, um, which bands? I listen to um, probably strange, usually Scandinavian bands. More gothic, more pagan, Viking metal. I love that. I love, I love radio. I'm a big fan of radio. You know, I listen to podcasts a lot when I'm walking and I walk a lot in London. So I just listen to, download podcast, listen to radio all the time, yeah. And I'm going to say something that, that might sound a little bit controversial, but when I, um, now I'm not going to give specific podcasts, but I, but I can say in general I love podcasts, but of course literature, but also about politics, culture. You know, I like it when I hear things that I don't know much about, mm. when it pushes me to, to think about issues in a, in a new light, I love that. But the controversial part wasn't that. Um, when I lived in America, I got into the habit of listening to more right-wing radio hosts and evangelical channels um, because I was very interested in the way they use language, mm. you know, metaphors and imagery and vocabulary. So I, I was very curious about that. And, uh, and I still do that so much so that sometimes my YouTube algorithm thinks I'm a you know, male American <laughs> white supremacist. I find it important to understand how come we have this incredible division and the same truth, the same world is interpreted in two completely different ways. Not, not, not two, I mean many different ways, but to, to understand how particularly more religious, bigoted um, interpretations or, or, or right, more radical right interpretations of the world today, how, how they formulate, they justify. So I do listen, in a nutshell, things that I don't necessarily agree with. How are these awful narratives being justified, mm. you know? What are the words? What is the logic they are using? We need to understand that. Huge thanks to Elif. Follow her and share your love at Elif underscore Sofak on Twitter and at Shafak Elif on Instagram. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, fellow bookshelf botherers. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollTheGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy Bee. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next time. For now, I'll leave you with some words from Nora Ephron. Reading is a way of making contact with someone else's imagination after a day that's all too real.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.